is the word of the Lord. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land, the Philistines, assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me. By a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know that what Saul has done, how he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. When the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life uh, in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he rose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. 
And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word explains to us everything about the world that we are living in. And uh, Lord, we pray that now as we set our minds to understand your word, you would lead us to put our trust in Jesus Christ and that we would obey him in our lives. And so we need your spirit to be our teacher as we study this passage together. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we are looking at a unique story in the Bible. It's the story about King Saul going to a witch to ask her to call up from the dead the prophet Samuel. And uh, maybe it's surprising to you that uh, he goes to this witch and then Samuel is called up. It seems to work. And uh, this is uh, the only time in the Bible that something like this uh, happens. And I think it, it gives us an opportunity to talk about the important topic of the occult. And the occult is basically, I, you know, summarizes the knowledge of the paranormal and, you know, the supernatural, spiritual, magical realities and energies and beings. And, it, and tied in with the occult are all kinds of supposed techniques that promise to put us in touch with kind of the unseen world of, of spirits. And a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned in a sermon that the Bible uh, does view the world as kind of magical. And I, I got some feedback that my use of the word magic, maybe you're here for that sermon, you know, it's kind of confusing. And uh, because for many people, magic always means dark magic. It's satanic or it's demonic. And I think that's a fair criticism. If you were here for that sermon, you were thinking that. Um, the way I was using the word magic is simply as the supernatural. You know, my, my brother's not a Christian. And when he, I talked to him about the Gospels, he always describes Jesus as healing people and raising them from the dead, and that they're magical stories. And I think, okay, it's magical. I think of it as kind of a white or pure magic. But I also understand people's concerns with the language of magic, especially because it's connected to the occult. And uh, one of the biggest Christian voices on this topic is C.S. Lewis. Uh, and what's interesting about Lewis, Lewis wrote about his magical view of the world in his Chronicles of Narnia stories and his space trilogy, but Lewis also wrote about his temptations toward the occult in his autobiography, and, and when Lewis was a, a child, he was a Christian when he was a child, and then in adolescence, he, he turned away from the faith and uh, became an atheist, and uh, when he was in school, he had this dorm mother, her name was Mrs. Cowie, she was basically a new age woman, and she just had a lot of energy, and she could connect with spiritual realities, and Lewis was deeply drawn to her. And in that phase of his life, this is, this is what he says in his autobiography, she started in me something with which off and on I have had plenty of trouble since, the passion for the occult. And of course, uh, Lewis rejected the occult in his conversion to Christianity and said it was demonic. But during that time of history, it's the early 20th century, Many people in the Western world had denied their Christian faith because of Darwinism. Darwinism was on the rise. And so there was this void of spirituality. And we are spiritual beings. And so whenever there's a void of spirituality, 
you're going to fill it with something. And during that time, there was a huge rise in the occult, and that's when the Ouija board was invented. And I think we're living in a similar time right now. You know, Christianity is in decline in our culture, and many people in our culture are turning to uh, paganism and the occult because there is a thirst in us for the spirit, the supernatural. And so I think it's a helpful topic for us to discuss. And so I want, today I want to make four observations from this passage about the occult. And, and this is what they are. Is that the occult begins with a desire for power. Second, the occult is a dark disobedience to God. Third, the occult is tapping into something real. And fourth, the occult is a counterfeit to the gospel. So four things about the occult that it's begins with a desire for power, it's a dark disobedience to God, it taps into something real, but ultimately it is a counterfeit to the gospel. And, and maybe I can just begin by saying one big takeaway from this sermon is that not all spirituality is good. You know, in a place like Bellingham, there's all kinds of people who say, I'm a, you know, I'm a spiritual person, I'm into spiritual things. And just because you connect with spiritual things does not mean those are good spirits. You know, just as in earthly life, there's good and darkness, there's, you know, there's darkness and light, there's good and evil. Same with the spiritual realm. There's good and, and darkness. And uh, today we are learning about some of the dark side of spirituality. So four observations this morning on the occult. And the first is this. The occult begins with a desire for power, a desire for power and, and control. And now the setting of this story is, is you see it in verse 4 there, where it says the Philistines assembled and came up and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. Now Shunem was a town that was on a, a hill in the territory of Issachar. Issachar is one of the 12 territories of ancient Israel. And this hill looked over one of the main trade routes that went through the Promised Land. And so the Philistines are trying to, to gain this, this uh, territory that will give them power and control over the Promised Land. And so Saul is concerned about this, and he responds by bringing his army on an opposite hill, Gilboa, where he can look overlook the Philistine army. And he sees the, sign of the size of the Philistine army on the hill. You see there in verse 5, it says, When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And so the context of this passage is the fear of Saul. His army is about to be defeated. He's anxious. He feels out of control. He doesn't know what to do about this. And so engaging with the cult is, always comes from this desire to regain control, to get power. And it can also come from a desire for wealth and for success. And, um, and you know, this desire for power and control, it can, that can appear in people's lives in countless ways. You know, whether it's a desire, I want to get a job, or I want romance in my life, or I have a dream for my life. And uh, actually, just a couple of weeks ago, I went to a, a concert here in Bellingham, and it was a, uh, the artist was not a Christian. And, you know, to be honest with you, this concert was kind of a dark and depressing experience. I you know, I just felt that all the people in this concert were trying to find some experience of transcendence, that they wanted this music to fulfill for them. And when you have this emptiness, when you don't have God in your life, you have to find something else to give you a sense of transcendence. And actually, someone was telling me in the first service that this, uh, this he had seen it an interview with this artist a few years ago where he, the artist said when he was like 19 years old that music is his God. 
And actually, I want to read to you some of the lyrics where one of the songs talks about the crossroads, which is where uh, Robert Johnson, the old uh, blues musician, sold his soul to the devil so that, you know, he could be a rock and roll star. And this is what it says. There are songs I've been singing since I was a child. They made me a living, but couldn't make me a man. And that's just what was promised way back at the crossroads where Robert Johnson sold his soul. Little did he know, no matter how much you like it, it's only rock and roll. I was struck by that line where he said that these songs couldn't make me a man. The occult makes a promise to give you the desires, but in the process destroys your person in the process. And so it's the desire for power and success and greatness that looks to the dark world of spirits and says, maybe there's something supernatural out there that can give me what I want. And that's the beginning of the journey into the occult. And, you know, if I could make one more side note, another conversation I had after the first service was uh, with Ryan Clausen, who's a member of our church who grew up as a missionary in, uh, in Ecuador. And he said there was all kinds of occult and satanic practices in that, in that region. And he had even as, a, as a, a young person some experiences with the demonic. And he realized that it's not only that, that these evil forces show up when we have a desire for power, but it's also when we're afraid. He says that Satan praise on fear and he felt that way as as a youth and he realized how much the name of Jesus was a protection to him in his early life and gave him confidence but that was his only foundation internally and so it's both a desire for power but it's also fear that Satan preys on fear and doesn't deliver us from fear but makes our fears even worse and you see in this passage that uh, Saul is in a position of great fear that leads him down this path of the occult. But I think that the main problem is actually not the desire for success. You know, I don't think it's wrong to want to be successful. It's a problem when the desire for success is, becomes more important than our desire for God himself. And then the question is, what are you willing to do to get that success? And so that leads to the second thing we learn about the occult in this passage is that the occult is a dark disobedience to God. So first, the occult begins with a desire for power, but second, the occult is a dark disobedience to God. And why do I say it's a dark disobedience? Well, I want to say a couple things about Saul's actions in this passage, okay? The first thing we see is that Paul knew this was evil. Paul knows that what he is doing is evil, and we know that the occult is evil, and, uh, and this passage is interesting because it le- at first it seems that, you know, Paul is seeking out the Lord for help and he gets no answer from the Lord. You see there in verse 6 how it says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. And so Saul's trying all these ways to get the connection and the help of the Lord, and, um, and, but he hears nothing from the Lord. And the reason... Saul hears nothing from the Lord is, of course, because he's been living a life of disobedience. You know, even here it says he, he gets no answers from the Urim. The Urim was a device that was on the garments of the, uh, of the, of the priests. And only the priests could use Urim to discern the will of the Lord. And Saul had killed all the priests just a few chapters back. And so, of course, there's no priests. And Samuel's dead. He's the, the, the prophet who is now dead. And so Saul sees 
the Lord not as his king to whom he owes obedience, but he sees the Lord like a genie who gives him the things he wants. And so once the Lord is unresponsive, he quickly turns to something that he knows is evil. And you see it there in verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. And so the Lord doesn't give Saul what he wants, so immediately Saul says, Go find me a witch. Saul knew that this was evil. And actually, back in verse 3, it says that earlier, Saul had actually expelled all the, the mediums and the necromancers. The necromancer is like someone who supposedly can communicate with the dead. So Saul had expelled them all out of the land, and that was probably because Samuel the prophet had told him to do that. And uh, that's what the, uh, the law of Moses had, had strictly forbidden, any kind of witchcraft or any kind of necromancy. And so now Saul or, uh, Samuel is dead, and so Saul's true colors... Shine, uh, begin to shine. And he had already disobeyed the Lord repeatedly, and so this is his last act of disobedience, and it's an especially dark turn. There is some evil that we do that, you know, we're just foolish, we're just ignorant, we don't really know what we're doing. And then there's something in the occult, in Satanism, that is a blatant doing of evil that we know is wrong. And that's what's happening here, and that's why we call it a dark disobedience. But there's a second reason that Saul's journey into the cult is a dark disobedience, not only because he knows blatantly that this is evil, but the second thing is that Saul does it in secret. Saul does it in secret. You see there in verse 8 how it says, So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. So he dresses up and he goes at night and this whole thing is done in secret. And, and of course, the, the occult is often shrouded in secrecy. You know, they, there's secret initiation rites and there's all kinds of rituals that happen at night or how, happen out in the forest where no one is around. And, uh, um, and I, you know, it just strikes me how different that is than what we're doing here. You know, the spirituality of the Bible is out in the open. There's nothing about our faith and religion that's hidden from anyone. You want to know anything about the Bible? You can know. You want to come sit in our service and be a part of it and listen to what we're doing and observe what we're doing? There is nothing that is hidden. This is an open secret because God is light. Everything is done in the light. And so how, how different is the occult? And often what happens in the secrecy of the occult is the taking of oaths where people bind themselves formally to evil. And you see that that happens here. So Paul, Saul comes to this witch, and she says, are you trying to get me in trouble? We're not, there's supposed to be no mediums or necromancers. And Saul says in verse 10, but Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So this is really twisted. Here's Saul. He's, he's going, having a seance, consulting a witch, and he's trying to use the Lord's name to have an oath saying that the Lord is going to protect you in the midst of your disobedience and evil. And so basically this is an oath of blasphemy. And so at this point you might say, okay, yes, I understand it. The occult comes from a desire for power and wealth and success. 
and is willing to disobey God in particularly dark ways in in order to get those desires, things that we know are evil, and doing rituals in secret. But the real question is, does it work? Does the occult work? And so that leads to our third point, is that the occult is tapping into something real. The occult is tapping into something real. And I've heard from uh, many people, uh, you know, I've known people who've been involved in witchcraft, and, and they have said that, you know, even after coming to the Lord, they would say, without a doubt, there, were, there was paranormal kind of powers that were at play and the things they were involved in. Uh, my son was telling me recently, he was here to talk from a missionary in, in Africa who's known demon-possessed people, have, you know, kind of super human kind of powers that, that are, you know, strange happenings that are happening. And so there are a couple of questions that I want to answer from this passage. And, and the first question is, is, was the witch really able to call up Samuel from the dead? Was the witch really able, did she have techniques to be able to call up Samuel from the dead? And you see here in verse 11 how it says, Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now, it seems to me that the witch basically begins this seance, but then she's shocked when Samuel actually appears. And maybe something different happened than what she's used to when she does these seances. But I think the surprise tells us that this was a unique act of God. Something that she was not expecting happened in that room. And it was not actually the evidence of her technical power to be able to do it. And because the reality is a lot of what we call magic is, of course, obviously a fraud. Like a lot of, you know, they're tarot card readers and all those kinds of things. That, that it's just deceit. People are being deceived. And uh, C.S. Lewis has a, in his great essay on uh, education, The Abolition of Man, he talks about how the rise of science and the rise of magic really happened historically at the same time because magic and science are trying to do the same thing. They're both trying to gain control over nature so that the hidden powers within nature can be unlocked. And so magic and science are trying to do the same thing. And this is how Lewis puts it. He says, you will even find people who write about the 16th century as if magic were a medieval survival and science the new thing that came to sweep it away. Those who've studied the period know better. There was very little magic in the Middle Ages. The 16th and 17th centuries are the high noon of magic. The serious magical endeavor and the serious scientific endeavor are twins. One was sickly and died, the other strong and throve, but they were twins. They were born of the same impulse. And basically he's saying the reason that magic didn't become as big as science is because magic didn't work. And science did work. And so people invested way more in science. Now, you might hear that and say, okay, magic doesn't work, but isn't there some spiritual reality happening within witchcraft? And I think we have to remember that the occult is demonic, and demons are liars. Demons are frauds. They're just like the devil. The devil is a liar. He's tricking people. And I think there are all kinds of paranormal uh, occurrences, you know, that are just demons pretending to be UFOs or ghosts or Bigfoot or whatever it is. Um, It's the demon deceiving people to get them obsessed with these paranormal activities and get their minds off of God, 
who is the true and, and living spirituality that we're supposed to know. And I think this is true of seances as well. It's not really the dead grandma that the medium is communicating with. It's the demon pretending to be grandma. But I think clearly a biblical worldview has room to acknowledge that something is indeed happening. Not all spirituality is good. But again, someone might say, okay, well, even if most occult activity is demonic deception, in this story, wasn't it really Samuel who uh, was called up? And so I, I think that's the, the second question. So the first question, was the witch really able to call up Samuel from the dead? I think no. I think she was shocked because uh, this is something that never happened before and never happened again. It was a unique act of God. And I'll explain in a minute why God did it. But the second was, was Samuel really called up from the dead? Was Samuel really called up from the dead? Now, quite cl clearly, it seems like Samuel's spirit was raised up. You see there in verse 14, it says, And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And so it's interesting, the spirit looks like Samuel, he's got a robe, so apparently spirits wear clothes, which, you know, I can't really make a judgment either way whether spirits, I haven't been there. So apparently spirits wear robes. But the reason we know this is not a demon is because of the speech that Samuel gives. And so, you know, uh, Samuel asks Saul, why did you bring me up? And Saul says, well, the Philistines are beating us, and I didn't know what to do, and God's not answering me, so I thought I'd call up you. And so Samuel answers, and as you listen to the, uh, the speech that Samuel gives, it's the exact same kind of thing that he said when he was alive. He's just repeating his message. Verse 17, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and, is, and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. And so though this seance didn't really work, the Lord... You know, the witch can't bring up Samuel, but the Lord can bring up Samuel. And he does here, and why does the Lord bring up Samuel? To give one last prophetic judgment against Saul for his disobedience against the Lord. Now, I will say this, though, that this story does confirm to us that the soul goes somewhere after death. Samuel's spirit had an existence after he died. And you are going to have an existence after you die as well. And that is some of the most important information that a human being can have in this world is to know that your spirit is going to go somewhere when you die. And it's something that you should be thinking about. Where is my soul going to go after I die? And, and if you think, well, you know, everyone's soul goes to a better place when you die, I'd ask you where you came up with that. And you might say, well, I just, I thought of it. And I hope that's what happens. And I'll just tell you that the Bible does not agree with you that your soul automatically goes to a better place when you die. Where do souls go when they die? Well, before the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the souls of the dead went to Sheol or to Hades, the place of the dead, and which had a place for the faithful. Faithful men like Samuel went to a place in Sheol that Jesus called Abraham's bosom, or, or he calls, tells the thief on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So there's an aspect of, of Sheol that was paradise. And then there's another place where the wicked went, 
which is kind of a hellish prison where they were held until the day of final judgment. And now what's happened, that Jesus has died for the sins of his people, and he's been raised from the dead, and he's, he's ascended into heaven. Uh, paradise has now moved to heaven. And so the souls of believers go to heaven now when they die. And I want to say this to you this morning, that if you do not know Jesus Christ, you can have no confidence about where your soul will go after death. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you can have no confidence about where your soul will go after death. And if you say, well, why not? Why can't I have confidence? Well, where would you get that confidence? I mean, you can't tell yourself what's going to happen to your soul. Have you talked to someone who's gone past the grave? There is only one person in the history of the world, of all the philosophers, of all the spiritual leaders, there is only one who has descended into the grave and come back. And he has, he has been given the keys of death and Hades. He is the only one who can speak with authority. And the positive side of that is that if you know Jesus Christ, you can have confidence. You can have assurance to say, when I die, I know that I will go to be with the Lord. And the Lord calls you today to believe in him. It's those who trust in Jesus Christ that will be with him after they die. And so this brings us to an interesting place because we've seen that the occult begins with a desire for power, but then leads us into a dark disobedience to God. And it's dark because we know that it's evil, and so it's done in secret. But we also see in this passage that there are unseen realities and powers in this world, and so the occult is tapping into something real. And generally, it's just demonic deception. But even here, there is some parallel between the Lord's work and the work of the witch. And so that leads to our final point, that the occult is a counterfeit to the gospel. The occult is a counterfeit to the gospel. And of course, a counterfeit looks like the real thing, but it's a fake. And I've mentioned uh, C.S. Lewis a couple of times. And one of the things that Lewis insisted on throughout his life was that Christ was not only prefigured in the Old Testament scriptures of the Jews, but that he was also prefigured in the pagan religions of, of, uh, of, um, of the world. And many pagan religions talked about gods that died and then rose back from the dead. And it was, you know, there was all mythology, and we don't know when that happened. It never really happened. But even here, you see that mentioned in verse 13, how it says, the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. The occult is looking for a way to overcome the grave. And in that sense, it's a counterfeit gospel because that's what the gospel is about. It's about overcoming the grave. But the words of the witch here are like a strange prophecy of what God would eventually do in Christ to overcome the grave. Except he wouldn't be a God coming up out of the earth. He is the God, the true God who came up out of the earth in his resurrection. And C.S. Lewis found that the occult promised to satisfy a thirst in him, but it always failed and left him empty. And that is because the spiritual reality that we were made to experience is the risen Jesus Christ. And he's not just a God. He is God himself. He is the creator of heaven and earth who took on flesh and who descended into the darkness of the grave and was raised, not just as a spirit like Samuel is here, his body was raised from the dead to an indestructible life and he lives forever and offers eternal life to ever 
puts their trust in him. And so as confusing as the word magic can be, I believe that Jesus is the true magic. And everything else is only a counterfeit. And so if you feel the same thirst for the, super, the spiritual that Lewis felt, Jesus Christ calls you to not turn to the dark forces of disobedience, for those spiritual powers are real and they will destroy you. Instead, turn to the Lord of life, the Lord of spirits, the true God who came up out of the earth, and in him you will find true life the life that is everlasting. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you that your word speaks to us the truth. And it speaks to us truth that enables us to discern good from evil. And Lord, we have to discern good and evil in earthly things but we also need powers to discern good and evil in spiritual matters. And so may this text instruct us in the way of, of the light. And Lord, we are gathered here because we believe that the true spirituality is only found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that every soul present here would know the eternal life that he offers and have confidence of where their soul will be going after the day of their death. And Lord, we thank you that as your people, we can have assurance. Assurance in the gospel, it's a great comfort to us, Lord. May it give us courage and may it lead us to obedience all of our days, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.